Chapters 19 through 21 of Space Viking by H. Beam Piper. Read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Space Viking 19. Prince Trask of Tanith and Prince Simon Bentrick were dining together on an upper terrace of what had originally been the mansion-house of a Federation-period plantation. It had been a number of other things since. Now it was the municipal building of a town that had grown around it, which had somehow escaped undamaged from the Dunnan Blitz. Normally about five or ten thousand, the place was now jammed with almost fifty thousand homeless refugees, from half a dozen other towns that had been destroyed, overflowing the buildings and crowding into a sprawling camp of hastily built huts and shelters, and already permanent buildings were going up to accommodate them. Everybody, locals, Marduckans, and space Vikings, had been busy with the work of relief and reconstruction. This was the first meal the two commanders had been able to share in any leisure at all. Prince Bentrick's enjoyment of it was somewhat impaired, by the fact that from where he sat he could see in the distance the sphere of his disabled ship. "'I doubt we can get her off planet again, let alone into hyperspace. Well, we'll get you and your crew to Marduk in the Nemesis, then.' They were both speaking loudly, above the clank and clatter of machinery below. I don't know how either of us will be received. Space Vikings haven't been exactly popular on Marduk lately. They may thank you for bringing me back to stand trial, Bentrick said bitterly. Why, I'd have anybody shot who let his ship get caught as I did mine. Those two were down in atmosphere before I knew they'd come out of hyperspace. I think they were down on the planet before your ship arrived. Oh, that's ridiculous, Prince Trask, the Marduckan cried. You can't hide a ship on a planet, not from the kind of instruments we have in the Royal Navy. We have pretty fair detection ourselves, Trask reminded him. There's one place where you can do it, at the bottom of an ocean, with a thousand or so feet of water over her. That's where I was going to hide the nemesis, if I got here ahead of Dunnan. Prince Bentrick's fork stopped halfway to his mouth. He lowered it slowly to his plate. That was a theory he'd like to accept if he could. But the locals, they didn't know about it. They wouldn't. They have no off-planet detection of their own. Come in directly over the ocean, out of the sun, and nobody'd see the ship. Is that a regular space Viking trick? No, I invented it myself, on the way from Seashat. But if Dunnan wanted to ambush your ship, he'd have thought of it, too. It's the only practical way to do it. Dunnan, or Neville Orme, he wished he knew, and was afraid he would go on wishing all his life. Bentrick started to pick up his fork again, changed his mind, and sipped from his wine-glass instead. You may find you're quite welcome on Marduk at that, he said. These raids have only been a serious problem in the last four years. 
I believe, as you do, that this enemy of yours is responsible for all of them. We have half the Royal Navy out now, patrolling our trade planets. Even if he wasn't aboard the Enterprise when you blew her up, you've put a name on him and can tell us a good deal about him." He set down the wine-glass. Why, if it weren't so utterly ridiculous, one might even think he was making war on Marduk. From Trask's viewpoint it wasn't ridiculous at all. He merely mentioned that Andre Dunnan was psychotic and let it go at that. The Victrix was not completely unrepairable, although quite beyond the resources at hand. A fully equipped engineer ship from Marduk could patch her hull and replace her Dillinghams and her Abbott lift and drive engines and make her temporarily spaceworthy until she could be gotten to a shipyard. They concentrated on repairing the Nemesis, and in another two weeks she was ready for the voyage. The six-hundred-hour trip to Marduk passed pleasantly enough. The Mardukan officers were good company and found their space-viking opposite numbers equally so. The two crews had become used to working together on Autholma and mingled amicably off-watch, interesting themselves in each other's hobbies and listening avidly to tales of each other's home planets. The space-vikings were surprised and disappointed at the somewhat lower intellectual level of the Mardukans. They couldn't understand that. Marduk was supposed to be a civilized planet, wasn't it? The Mardukans were just as surprised and inclined to be resentful that the space Vikings all acted and talked like officers. Hearing of it, Prince Bentrick was also puzzled. Foxle hands on a Mardukan ship belong definitely to the lower orders. There's still too much free land and free opportunity on the sword worlds, Trask explained. Nobody does much bowing and scraping to the class above him. He's too busy trying to shove himself up into it. And the men who ship out as space vikings are the least class-conscious of the lot. Think my men will have trouble on Marduk about that? They'll all insist on doing their drinking in the swankiest places in town. No, I don't think so. Everybody will be so amazed that space vikings aren't twelve feet tall, with three horns, like a Zarathustra damn-thing, and a spiked tail like a Fafnir Manticore, that they won't even notice anything less. Might do some good in the long run. Crown Prince Edvard will like your space vikings. He's much opposed to class distinctions and caste prejudices says they have to be eliminated before we can make democracy really work." The Marduckans talked a lot about democracy. They thought well of it. Their government was a representative democracy. It was also a hereditary monarchy, if that made any kind of sense. Trask's efforts to explain the political and social structure of the sword worlds met the same incomprehension from Bentrick. Why, it sounds like feudalism to me. That's right, that's what it is. A king owes his position to the support of his great nobles. They owe theirs to their barons and landholding knights. They owe theirs to their people. There are limits beyond which none of them can go. After that, their vassals turn on them. Well, suppose the people of some barony rebel. Won't the king send troops to support the baron? 
What troops? Outside a personal guard and enough men to police the royal city and hold the crown lands, the king has no troops. If he wants troops, he has to get them from his great nobles. They have to get them from their vassal barons, who raise them by calling out their people. That was another source of dissatisfaction with King Angus of Graham. He had been augmenting his forces by hiring off-planet mercenaries. And the people won't help some other baron oppress his people. It might be their turn next. You mean the people are armed? Prince Bentrick was incredulous. Great Satan, aren't yours? Prince Trask was equally surprised. Then your democracy's a farce, and the people are only free on sufferance. If their ballots aren't secured by arms, they're worthless. Who has the arms on your planet? Why, the government. You mean the king? Prince Bentrick was shocked. Certainly not. Horrid idea. That would be, why, it would be despotism. Besides, the king wasn't the government at all. The government ruled in the king's name. There was the assembly, the chamber of representatives, and the chamber of delegates. The people elected the representatives, and the representatives elected the delegates, and the delegates elected the chancellor. Then there was the prime minister. He was appointed by the king, but the king had to appoint him from the party holding the most seats in the chamber of representatives. And he appointed the ministers, who handled the executive work of the government. Only their subordinates in the different ministries were career officials, who were selected by competitive examination from the bottom jobs and promoted up the bureaucratic ladder from there. This left Trask wondering if the Marducan Constitution hadn't been devised by Goldberg, the legendary old Terran inventor who always did everything the hard way. It always left him wondering just how in Gehenna the government of Marduk ever got anything done. Maybe it didn't. Maybe that was what saved Marduk from having a real despotism. Well, what prevents the government from enslaving the people? The people can't. You just told me that they aren't armed, and the government is. He continued, pausing now and then for breath, to catalogue every tyranny he had ever heard of, from those practiced by the Terran Federation before the Big War, to those practiced at Eglinsby on Amaterasu by Pedrosan Pedro. A few of the very mildest were pushing the nobles and people of Graham to revolt against Angus I. And in the end, he finished, the government would be the only property owner and the only employer on the planet, and everybody else would be slaves, working at assigned tasks, wearing government-issued clothing, and eating government food, their children educated as the government prescribes, and trained for jobs selected for them by the government, never reading a book or seeing a play or thinking a thought that the government had not approved. Most of the Marduckans were laughing now. Some of them were accusing him of being just too utterly ridiculous. Why, the people are the government! The people would not legislate themselves into slavery! He wished Otto Harkeman were there. All he knew of history was the little he had gotten from reading some of Harkeman's books, 
and the long, rambling conversations aboard ship in hyperspace, or in the evenings at Rivington. But Harkeman, he was sure, could have furnished hundreds of instances, on scores of planets and over ten centuries of time, in which people had done exactly that and hadn't known what they were doing, even after it was too late. "'They have something about like that on Aton,' one of the Marducan officers said. "'Oh, Aton, that's a dictatorship, pure and simple. That planetary nationalist gang got into control fifty years ago, during the crisis after the war with Baldur. They were voted into power by the people, weren't they?' "'Yes, they were,' Prince Bentrick said gravely. "'It was an emergency measure.' and they were given emergency powers. Once they were in, they made the emergency permanent. "'That couldn't happen our Marduk,' a young nobleman declared. "'It could if Zaspar McCann's party wins control of the Assembly at the next election,' somebody else said. "'Oh, then Marduk's safe. The sun'll go Nova first, one of the junior Royal Navy officers said. After that they began talking about women a subject any spaceman will drop any other subject to discuss. Trask made a mental note of the name of Zaspar McCann, and took occasion to bring it up in conversation with his shipboard guests. Every time he talked about McCann to two or more Marduckans, he heard at least three or more opinions about the man. He was a political demagogue. On that everybody agreed. After that opinions diverged. McCann was a raving lunatic, and all the followers he had were a handful of lunatics like him. He might be a lunatic, but he had a dangerously large following. Well, not so large. Maybe they'd pick up a seat or so in the assembly, but that was doubtful. Not enough of them in any representative district to elect an assemblyman. He was just a smart crook milking a lot of half-witted plebeians for all he could get out of them. Not just plebes, either. A lot of industrialists were secretly financing him, in hope that he would help them break up the labor unions. Yar nuts! Everybody knew the labor unions were backing him, hoping he'd scare the employers into granting concessions. Yar both nuts! He was backed by the mercantile interests, they were hoping he'd run the Gilgameshers off the planet. Well, that was one thing you had to give him credit for. He wanted to run out the Gilgameshers. Everybody was in favor of that. Now, Trask could remember something he'd gotten from Harkeman. There had been Hitler, back at the end of the first century pre-atomic, Hadn't he gotten into power because everybody was in favor of running out the Christians, or the Moslems, or the Albingensians, or somebody? 20. Marduk had three moons, a big one, fifteen hundred miles in diameter, and two insignificant twenty-mile chunks of rock. The big one was fortified, and a couple of ships were in orbit around it. The nemesis was challenged as she emerged from her last hyperjump. Both ships broke orbit and came out to meet her, and several more were detected lifting away from the planet. Prince Bentrick took the communication screen and immediately encountered difficulties. 
The Commandant, even after the situation had been explained twice to him, couldn't understand. A Royal Navy fleet unit knocked out in a battle with space Vikings was bad enough, but being rescued and brought to Marduk by another space Viking simply didn't make sense. He then screened the Royal Palace at Malverton on the planet. First, he was icily polite to somebody several echelons below him in the peerage, and then respectfully polite to somebody he addressed as Prince Vandervant. Finally, after some minutes' wait, a frail, white-haired man in a little black cap of maintenance appeared on the screen. Prince Bentrick instantly sprang to his feet. So did all the other Marduckans in the command room. "'Your Majesty, I am most deeply honored. "'Are you all right, Simon?' the old gentleman asked solicitously. "'They haven't done anything to you, have they?' "'Saved my life, and my men's, and treated me like a friend and comrade, Your Majesty. "'Have I your permission to present, informally, their commander, Prince Trask of Tanith?' "'Indeed you may, Simon. I owe the gentleman my deepest thanks.' His Majesty Mikhail the Eighth, Planetary King of Marduk, Prince Bentrick said. His Highness Lucas Prince Trask, Planetary Viceroy of Tanith, for His Majesty Angus the First of Graham. The elderly monarch bowed his head slightly. Trask bowed a little more deeply from the waist. I am very happy, Prince Trask. First, I confess, at the safe return of my kinsman, Prince Bentrick, and then at the honor of meeting one in the confidence of my fellow-sovereign, King Angus of Graham. I will never be ungrateful for what you did for my cousin and for his officers and men. You must stay at the palace while you are on this planet. I am giving orders for your reception, and I wish you to be formally presented to me this evening." He hesitated briefly. "'Graham, that is one of the sword-worlds, is it not?' Another brief hesitation. "'Are you really a space-viking, Prince Trask?' Maybe he'd expected space-vikings to have three horns and a spiked tail and stand twelve feet tall himself. It took several hours for the nemesis to get into orbit. Bentrick spent most of them in a screen-booth and emerged visibly relieved. "'Nobody's going to be sticky about what happened on Aunt Hulma,' he told Trask. "'There will be a board of inquiry. I'm afraid I had to mix you up in that. It's not only about the action on Aunt Hulma. Everybody from the space minister down wants to hear what you know about this fellow Dunnan. Like yourself, we all hope he went to M.C. Square along with his flagship, but we can't take it for granted. We have over a dozen trade planets to protect.' and he's hit more than half of them already." The process of getting into orbit took them around the planet several times, and it was a more impressive spectacle at each circuit. Of course, Marduk had a population of almost two billion, and had been civilized, with no hiatus of neo-barbarism, since it had first been colonized in the fourth century. Even so, the space Vikings were amazed, and stubbornly refused to show it at what they saw in the telescopic screens. "'Look at that city!' Patrick Morland whispered. "'We talk about civilized planets, but I never realized they were anything like this. Why, this makes Excalibur look like Tanith!' 
The city was Malverton, the capital. Like any city of a contragravity-using people, it lay in a rough circle of buildings towering out of green interspaces, surrounded by the smaller circles of spaceports and industrial suburbs. The difference was that any of these were as large as Camelot on Excalibur, or four Wardshavens on Graham, and Malverton itself was almost half the size of the whole barony of Traskin. They aren't any more civilized than we are, Patrick. There are just more of them. If there were two billion people on Graham, which I hope there never will be, Graham would have cities like this, too. One thing, the government of a planet like Marduk would have to have something more elaborate than the loose feudalism of the sword worlds. Maybe this Goldbergocracy of theirs had been forced upon them by the sheer complexity of the population and its problems. Alvin Carford took a quick look around him to make sure none of the Marduckans were in earshot. I don't care how many people they have, he said. Marduk can be had. A wolf never cares how many sheep there are in the flock. With twenty ships, we could take this planet like we took Eglinsby. There'd be losses coming in, sure, but after we were in and down, we'd have it. Where would we get twenty ships? Tanith, at a pinch, could muster five or six, counting the free-space Vikings who used the base facilities. They would have to leave a couple to hold the planet. Beowulf had one, and another almost completed, and now there was an Amaterasu ship. But to assemble a space Viking armada of twenty, he shook his head. The real reason why space Vikings had never raided a civilized planet successfully had always been their inability to combine under one command in sufficient strength. Besides, he didn't want to raid Marduk. A raid, if successful, would yield immense treasures, but cause a hundred, even a thousand times as much destruction, and he didn't want to destroy anything civilized. The landing stages of the palace were crowded when he and Prince Bentrick landed, and, at a discreet distance, swarms of air vehicles circled, creating a control problem for the police. Parting from Bentrick, he was escorted to the suite prepared for him. It was luxurious in the extreme, but scarcely above sword-world standards. There were a surprising number of human servants, groveling and fawning and getting underfoot, and doing work robots could have been doing better. What robots there were were inefficient, and much work and ingenuity had been lavished on efforts to copy human form to the detriment of function. After getting rid of most of the superfluous servants, he put on a screen and began sampling the newscasts. There were telescopic views of the nemesis from some craft on orbit nearby, and he watched the officers and men of the Victrix being disembarked. There were other views of their landing at some naval installation on the ground, and he could see reporters being chevied away by naval ground police, and there was a wide range of commentary opinion. The government had already denied that, one, Prince Bentrick had captured the nemesis and brought her in as a prize, and, two, the space Vikings had captured Prince Bentrick and were holding him for ransom. Beyond that, the government was trying to sit on the whole story, and the opposition was hinting darkly at corrupt deals and sinister plots. 
Prince Bentrick arrived in the midst of an impassioned tirade against pusillanimous traitors surrounding His Majesty, who were betraying Marduk to the Space Vikings. "'Why doesn't your government publish the facts and put a stop to that nonsense?' Trask asked. "'Oh, let them rave,' Bentrick replied. "'The longer the government waits, the more they'll be ridiculed when the facts are published.' or the more people will be convinced that the government had something to hush up and had to take time to construct a plausible story. He kept the thought to himself. It was their government, how they mismanaged it was their own business. He found there was no bartending robot. He had to have a human servant bring drinks. He made up his mind to have a few of the nemesis robots sent down to him. The formal presentation would be in the evening. There would be a dinner first, and because Trask had not yet been formally presented, he couldn't dine with the king, but because he was, or claimed to be, viceroy of Tanith, he ranked as a chief of state and would dine with the crown prince, to whom there would be an informal introduction first. This took place in a small antechamber off the banquet hall. The crown prince and crown princess and princess Bentrick were there when they arrived. The crown prince was a man of middle age, graying at the temples, with a glassy stare that betrayed contact lenses. The resemblance between him and his father was apparent. Both had the same studious and impractical expression that might have been professors on the same university faculty. He shook hands with Trask, assuring him of the gratitude of the court and royal family. You know, Simon is next in succession, after myself and my little daughter, he said. That's too close to take chances with him. He turned to Bentrick. I'm afraid this is your last space adventure, Simon. You'll have to be a spaceport spaceman from now on. I shan't be sorry, Princess Bentrick said. And if anybody owes Prince Trask gratitude, I do. She pressed his hands warmly. Prince Trask, my son wants to meet you very badly. He's ten years old, and he thinks space vikings are romantic heroes. He should be one for a while. He should just see a planet space vikings had raided. Most of the people at the upper end of the table were diplomats, ambassadors from Odin and Baldur and Isis and Ishtar and Aton and the other civilized worlds. No doubt they hadn't actually expected horns and a spiked tail, or even tattooing and a nose-ring, but after all, space vikings were just some sort of neo-barbarians, weren't they? On the other hand, they had all seen views and gotten descriptions of the nemesis, and had heard about the ship action on Odholma, and this Prince Trask, a space viking prince, that sounded civilized enough had saved a life with only three other lives, one almost at an end between it and the throne. And they had heard about the screen conversation with King McHill. So they were courteous through the meal and tried to get as close as possible to him in the procession to the throne room. King McHill wore a golden crown topped by the planetary emblem, which must have weighed twice as much as a combat helmet, and four-edged robes that would weigh more than a suit of space armor. 
They weren't nearly as ornate, though, as the regalia of King Angus I of Graham. He rose to clasp Prince Bentrick's hand, calling him dear cousin, and congratulating him on his gallant fight and fortunate escape. That knocks any court-martial talk on the head, Trask thought. He remained standing to shake hands with Trask, calling him valued friend to me and my house. First person singular. That must be causing some lifted eyebrows. Then the king sat down, and the rest of the roomful filed up onto the dais to be received, and finally it was over and the king rose and proceeded, followed by his immediate suite between the bowing and curtsying court and out the wide doors. After a decent interval, Crown Prince Edvard escorted him and Prince Bentrick down the same route, the others falling in behind, and across the hall to the ballroom where there was soft music and refreshments. It wasn't too unlike a court reception on Excalibur, except that the drinks and canapes were being dispensed by human servants. He was wondering what sort of court functions Angus I of Graham was holding by now. After half an hour, a posse of court functionaries approached and informed him that it had pleased His Majesty to command Prince Trask to attend him in his private chambers. There was an audible gasp at this. Both Prince Bentrick and the Crown Prince were trying not to grin too broadly. Evidently, this didn't happen too often. He followed the functionaries from the ballroom, and the eyes of everybody else followed him. Old King McHill received him alone, in a small, comfortably shabby room behind vast ones of incredible splendor. He wore fur-lined slippers and a loose robe with a fur collar, and his little black cap of maintenance. He was standing when Trask entered. When the guards closed the door and left them alone, he beckoned Trask to a couple of chairs with a low table, on which were decanters and glasses and cigars between. "'It's a presumption on royal authority to summon you from the ballroom,' he began, after they had seated themselves and filled glasses. "'You are quite the cynosure, you know.' "'I'm grateful to your majesty. It's both comfortable and quiet here, and I can sit down. Your majesty was the center of attention in the throne room, yet I seem to detect a look of relief as you left it.' "'I try to hide it as much as possible.' The old king took off the little gold-circled cap and hung it on the back of his chair. "'Majesty can be rather wearying, you know.' So he could come here and put it off. Trass felt that some gesture should be made on his own part. He unfastened the dress-dagger from his belt and laid it on the table. The king nodded. "'Now we can be a couple of honest tradesmen, our shops closed for the evening, relaxing over our wine and tobacco.' he said. Eh, Goodman Lucas? It seemed like an initiation into a secret society whose ritual he must guess at step by step. Right, Goodman McHill. They lifted their glasses to each other and drank. Goodman McHill offered cigars, and Goodman Lucas held a light for him. I hear a few hard things about your trade, Goodman Lucas. All true, and mostly understated. We are professional murderers and robbers, as one of my fellow tradesmen says. The worst of it is that robbery and murder become just that, a trade, like servicing robots or selling groceries. 
Yet you fought two other space Vikings to cover my cousin's crippled Victrix. Why? So he must tell his tale, so worn and smooth again. King McHill's cigar went out while he listened. And you have been hunting him ever since? And now you can't be sure whether you killed him or not. I'm afraid I didn't. The man in the screen is the only man Dunnan can really trust. One or the other would stay wherever he has his base all the time. And when you do kill him, what then? I'll go on trying to make a civilized planet of Tanith. Sooner or later I'll have one quarrel too many with King Angus, and then we will be Our Majesty Lucas I of Tanith, and we will sit on a throne and receive our subjects. And I'll be glad when I can get my crown off and talk to a few men who call me shipmate instead of Your Majesty. Well, it would violate professional ethics for me to advise a subject to renounce his sovereign, of course, but that might be an excellent thing. You met the ambassador from Ithaval at dinner, did you not? Three centuries ago, Ithaval was a colony of Marduk. It seems we can't afford colonies any more. And it seceded from us. Ithaval was then a planet like your Tanith seems to be. Today it is a civilized world, and one of Marduk's best friends. You know, sometimes I think a few lights are coming on again, here and there in the old Federation. If so, you space Vikings are helping to light them. You mean the planets we use as bases, and the things we teach the locals? That, too, of course. Civilization needs civilized technologies. But they have to be used for civilized ends. Do you know anything about a space Viking raid on Aton over a century ago? Six ships from Halteclair, four destroyed, the other two returned damaged, and without booty. The King of Marduk nodded. That raid saved civilization on Aton. There were four great nations. The two greatest were at the brink of war, and the others were waiting to pounce on the exhausted victor and then fight each other for the spoils. The space Vikings forced them to unite. Out of that temporary alliance came the League for Common Defense, and from that the Planetary Republic. The Republic's a dictatorship now and just between Goodman Mikhail and Goodman Lucas it's a nasty one, and Our Majesty's government doesn't like it at all. It will be smashed sooner or later, but they'll never go back to divided sovereignty and nationalism again. The space Vikings frightened them out of that when the dangers inherent in it couldn't. Maybe this man Dunnan will do the same for us on Marduk. You have troubles? You've seen decivilized planets. How does it happen? I know how it's happened on a good many. War. Destruction of cities and industries. Survivors among ruins, too busy keeping their own bodies alive to try to keep civilization alive. Then they lose all knowledge of how to be civilized. That's catastrophic decivilization. There is also decivilization by erosion, and while it's going on, nobody notices it. Everybody is proud of their civilization, their wealth and culture. But trade is falling off, fewer ships come in each year. So there is boastful talk about planetary self-sufficiency. Who needs off-planet trade, anyhow? Everybody seems to have money. 
but the government is always broke. Deficit spending, and always the vital social services for which the government has to spend money. The most vital one, of course, is buying votes to keep the government in power, and it gets harder for the government to get anything done. The soldiers are sloppier at drill, and their uniforms and weapons are taken care of. The non-coms are insolent, and more and more parts of the city are dangerous at night, and then even in the daytime. And it's been years since a new building went up, and the old ones aren't being repaired any more." Trask closed his eyes. Again he could feel the mellow sun of Graham on his back, and hear the laughing voices on the lower terrace. And he was talking to Lothar Fale and Rovard Grofus, and Alex Gorham and Cousin Nicolay and Otto Harkeman. He said, And, finally, nobody bothers fixing anything up, and the power reactors stop, and nobody seems to be able to get them started again. It hasn't quite gotten that far in the sword worlds yet. It hasn't here, either, yet. Goodman McHill slipped away, and King McHill Eighth looked across the low table at his guest. Prince Trask, have you heard of a man named Zaspar McCann? Occasionally, nothing good about him. He is the most dangerous man on this planet, the king said, and I can make nobody believe it, not even my son. 21. Prince Ventrick's ten-year-old son, Count Stephen of Ravery, wore the uniform of an ensign of the Royal Navy. He was accompanied by his tutor, an elderly Navy captain. They both stopped in the doorway of Trask's suite, and the boy saluted smartly. "'Permission to come aboard, sir?' he asked. "'Welcome aboard, Count. Captain. Belay the ceremony and find seats. You're just in time for a second breakfast.' As they sat down, he aimed his ultraviolet light pencil at a serving robot. Unlike Marducan robots, which looked like surrealist conceptions of pre-atomic armored knights, it was a smooth ovoid floating a few inches from the floor on its own contragravity. As it approached, its top opened like a bursting beetle shell, and hinged trays of food swung out. The boy looked at it in fascination. "'Is that a sword-world robot, sir, or did you capture it somewhere?' "'It's one of our own.' He was pardonably proud. It had been built on Tanith a year before. "'Has an ultrasonic dishwasher underneath, and it does some cooking on top at the back.' The elderly captain was, if anything, even more impressed than his young charge. He knew what went into it, and he had some conception of the society that would develop things like that. "'I take it you don't use many human servants with robots like that,' he said. "'Not many. We're all low-population planets, and nobody wants to be a servant. We have too many people on Marduk, and all of them want soft jobs as noble servants.' the captain said, those that want any kind of jobs. "'You need all the people for fighting men, don't you?' the boy Count asked. "'Well, we need a good many. The smallest of our ships will carry five hundred men, most of them around eight hundred. The captain lifted an eyebrow. The complement of the Victrix had been three hundred, and she'd been a big ship. Then he nodded. Of course, most of them are ground fighters. That started Count Stephen off. 
questions about battles and raids and booty and the planets Trask had seen. I wish I were a space Viking. Well, you can't be, Count Ravery. You're an officer of the Royal Navy. You're supposed to fight space Vikings. I won't fight you. You'd have to, if the king commanded, the old captain told him. No, Prince Trask is my friend. He saved my father's life. And I won't fight you either, Count. We'll make a lot of fireworks, and then we'll each go home and claim victory. How would that be? I've heard of things like that, the captain said. We had a war with Odin seventy years ago. That was mostly that sort of battles. Besides, the king is Prince Trask's friend, too, the boy insisted. Father and Mummy heard him say so, right on the throne. Kings don't lie when they're on the throne, do they? Good kings don't, Trask told him. Ours is a good king, young Count of Ravery declared proudly. I would do anything my king commanded, except fight Prince Trask. My house owes Prince Trask a debt. Trask nodded approvingly. That's the way a sword-world noble would talk, Count Stephen, he said. The board of inquiry, that afternoon, was more like a small and very sedate cocktail party. And Admiral Schefter, who seemed to be very high, high brass, presided while carefully avoiding the appearance of doing so. Alvin Carford and Van Larch and Patrick Morland were there from the Nemesis, and Bentrick and several of the officers from the Victrix, and there were a couple of naval intelligence officers, and somebody from operational planning, and from ship construction and research and development. They chatted pleasantly and in a deceptively random manner for a while. Then Schefter said, well, there's no blame or censure of any sort for the way Commodore Prince Bentrick was surprised. That couldn't have been avoided at the time. He looked at the research and development officer. It shouldn't be allowed to happen many more times, though. Not many more, sir. I'd say it'll take my people a month, and then the time it'll take to get all the ships equipped as they come in. Ship construction didn't think that would take too long. Well, see to it that you get full information on the new submarine detection system, Prince Trask, the Admiral said. You gentlemen understand you'll have to keep it under your helmets, though, one of the intelligence men added. If it got out that we were informing space Vikings about our technical secrets, he felt the back of his neck in a way that made Trask suspect that beheadment was the customary form of execution on Marduk. We'll have to find out where that fellow has his base, operational planning said. I take it, Prince Trask, that you're not going to assume that he was on his flagship when you blew it, and just put paid to him and forget him. Oh, no. I'm assuming that he wasn't. I don't believe he and Orm went anywhere on the same ship, after he came out here and established a base. I think one of them would stay home all the time. Well, we'll give you everything we have on them, Schefter promised. Most of that is classified, and you'll have to keep quiet about it, too. I just skimmed over the summary of what you gave us. I dare say we'll both get a lot of new information. Have you any idea at all where he might be based, Prince Trask? Only that we think it's a non-Terra-type planet. 
He told them about Dunnan's heavy purchases of air and water recycling equipment and carniculture and hydroponic material. That, of course, helps a great deal. Yes, there are only about five million planets in the former Federation space volume that are inhabitable in artificial environment, including a few completely covered by seas, where you could put in underwater dome cities if you had the time and material. One of the intelligence officers had been nursing a glass with a tiny remnant of cocktail in it. He downed it suddenly, filled the glass again, and glowered at it in silence for a while. Then he drank it briskly and refilled it. What I should like to know, he said, is how this double obscenity of a Dunnan knew we'd have a ship on Otholma just when we did, he said. Your talking about underwater dome cities reminded me of it. I don't think he just pulled that planet out of a hat and then went there prepared to sit on the bottom of the ocean for a year and a half waiting for something to turn up. I think he knew the Victrix was coming into Outholma and just about when. I don't like that, Commodore, Schefter said. You think I do, sir? the intelligence officer countered. There it is, though. We all have to face it. We do, Schefter agreed. Get on it, Commodore, and I don't need to caution you to screen everybody you put onto it very carefully. He looked at his own glass. It had a bare thimbleful in the bottom. He replenished it slowly and carefully. It's been a long time since the Navy's had anything like this to worry about. He turned to Trask. I suppose I can get in touch with you at the palace whenever I must. Well, Prince Trask and I have been invited as house guests at Prince Edvard's, I mean Baron Cragdale's, hunting lodge, Bentrick said. We'll be going there directly from here. Ah, Admiral Schefter smiled slightly. Beside not having three horns and a spiked tail, this space viking was definitely persona grata with the royal family. Well, we'll keep in contact, Prince Trask. The hunting lodge where Crown Prince Edvard was simple Baron Cragdale lay at the head of a sharply sloped mountain valley down which a river tumbled. Mountains rose on either side in high scarps, some topped with perpetual snow, glaciers curling down from them. The lower ranges were forested, as was the valley between, and there was a red mauve alpen glow on the great peak that rose from the head of the valley. For the first time in over a year Elaine was with him, silently clinging to him to see the beauty of it through his eyes. He had thought that she had gone from him forever. The hunting lodge itself was not quite what a sword-worlder would expect a hunting lodge to be. At first sight from the air it looked like a sundial, a slender tower rising like a gnomon above a circle of low buildings and formal gardens. The boat landed at the foot of it, and he and Prince and Princess Bentrick and the young Count of Ravery and his tutor descended. Immediately they were beset by a flurry of servants. The second boat, with the Bentrick servants and their luggage, was circling in to land. Elaine, he discovered, wasn't with him any more and then he was separated from the Bentrix, and was being floated up an inside shaft in a lifter car. More servants installed him in his rooms, unpacked his cases, drew his bath, and even tried to help him take it, and fussed over him while he dressed. There were over a score for dinner. Bentrick had warned him that he'd find some odd types, 
Maybe he meant that they wouldn't all be nobles. Among the commoners there were some professors, mostly social sciences, a labor leader, a couple of representatives, and a member of the Chamber of Delegates, and a couple of social workers, whatever that meant. His own table companion was a lady Valerie Alvarath. She was beautiful, black hair and almost startlingly blue eyes, a combination unusual in the sword worlds, and she was intelligent, or at least cleverly articulate. She was introduced as the lady companion of the Crown Prince's daughter. When he asked where the daughter was, she laughed. She won't be helping entertain visiting space Vikings for a long time, Prince Trask. She is precisely eight years old. I saw her getting ready for bed before I came down here. I'll look in on her after dinner. Then the Crown Prince Melanie, on his other hand, asked him some question about Sword World court etiquette. He stuck to generalities, and what he could remember from a presentation at the court of Excalibur during his student days. These people had a monarchy since before Graham had been colonized. He wasn't going to admit that Graham's had been established since he went off-planet. The table was small enough for everybody to hear what he was saying and to feed questions to him. It lasted all through the meal, and continued when they adjourned for coffee in the library. "'But what about your form of government, your social structure, that sort of thing?' Somebody, impatient with the artificialities of the court, wanted to know. "'Well, we don't use the word government very much,' he replied. "'We talk a lot about authority and sovereignty, and I'm afraid we burn entirely too much powder over it. But government always seems to us like sovereignty interfering in matters that don't concern it. As long as sovereignty maintains a reasonable semblance of good public order and makes the more serious forms of crime fairly hazardous for the criminals, we're satisfied. But that's just negative. Doesn't the government do anything positive for the people? He tried to explain the sword world feudal system to them. It was hard, he found, to explain something you have taken for granted all your life to somebody who is quite unfamiliar with it. But the government, the sovereignty, since you don't like the other word, doesn't do anything for the people, one of the professors objected. It leaves all the social services to the whim of the individual lord or baron. And the people have no voice at all. Why, that's tyranny, a professor assemblyman added. He tried to explain that the people had a very distinct and commanding voice, and that barons and lords who wanted to stay alive listened attentively to it. The assemblyman changed his mind. That wasn't tyranny, it was anarchy. And the professor was still insistent about who performed the social services. If you mean schools and hospitals and keeping the city clean, the people do that for themselves. The government, if you want to think of it as that, just sees to it that nobody's shooting at them while they're doing it. That isn't what Professor Polwell means, Lucas. He means old-age pensions, Prince Bentrick said, like this thing Zaspar McCann's whooping for. He'd heard about that on the voyage from Odholma. Every person on Marduk would be retired on an adequate pension after thirty years' regular employment or at the age of sixty. When he wanted to know where the money would come from, he had been told that there would be a sales tax, 
and that the pensions must all be spent within thirty years, which would stimulate business, and the increased business would provide tax money to pay the pensions. We have a joke about three Gilgameshers space-wrecked on an uninhabited planet, he said. Ten years later, when they were rescued, all three were immensely wealthy, from trading hats with each other. That's about the way this thing will work. One of the lady social workers bristled. It wasn't right to make derogatory jokes about racial groups. One of the professors harumphed. Wasn't a parallel at all. The self-sustaining rotary pension plan was perfectly feasible. With a shock, Trask recalled that he was a professor of economics. Alvin Carford wouldn't need any twenty ships to loot Marduk, just infiltrate it with about a hundred smart confidence men, and inside a year they'd own everything on it. That started them all off on Zaspar McCann, though. Some of them thought he had a few good ideas, but was damaging his own case by extremism. One of the wealthier nobles said that he was a reproach to the ruling class. It was their fault that people like McCann could gain a following. One old gentleman said that maybe the Gilgameshers were to blame themselves for some of the animosity toward them. He was immediately set upon by all the others and verbally torn to pieces on the spot. Trass didn't feel it proper to quote Goodman McKill to this crowd. He took the responsibility upon himself for saying, From what I've heard of him, I think he's the most serious threat to civilized society on Marduk. They didn't call him crazy, after all, he was a guest, but they didn't ask him what he meant, either. They merely told him that McCann was a crackpot with a contemptible following of half-wits, and just wait till the election and see what happened. "'I'm inclined to agree with Prince Trask,' Bentrick said, soberly, "'and I'm afraid the election results will be a shock to us, not to McCann.' He hadn't talked that way on the ship. Maybe he'd been looking around and doing some thinking since he got back. He might have been talking to Goodman McKill, too. There was a screen in the room. He nodded toward it. "'He's speaking at a rally of the People's Welfare Party at Dreplin now,' he said. "'May I put it on, to show you what I mean?' When the Crown Prince ascended, he snapped on the screen and twiddled at the selector. A face looked out of it. The features weren't Andre Dunnan's, the mouth was wider, the cheekbones broader, and the chin more rounded. But his eyes were Dunnan's, as Trask had seen them on the terrace of Carvel House. Mad eyes! His high-pitched voice screamed, "'Our beloved sovereign is a prisoner! He's surrounded by traitors! The ministries are full of them! They're all traitors!' the bloodthirsty reactionaries of the falsely so-called Crown Loyalist Party, the grasping conspiracy of the interstellar bankers, the dirty Gilgameshers, they're all leagued together in an unholy conspiracy. And now this space Viking, this bloody-handed monster from the sword worlds, shut the horrible man off, somebody was yelling in competition with the hypnotic scream of the speaker. The trouble was, they couldn't. They could turn off the screen, but Zaspar McCann would go on screaming, and millions all over the planet would still hear him. 
Bentrick twiddled the selector. The voice stuttered briefly, and then came echoing out of the speaker. But this time the pickup was somewhere several hundred feet above a great open park. It was densely packed with people, most of them wearing clothes a farm tramp on Graham wouldn't be found dead in. But here and there among them were blocks of men in what was almost, but not quite, military uniform, each with a short and thick swagger stick with a knobbed head. Across the park in the distance the head and shoulders of Zaspar McCann loomed a hundred feet high in a huge screen. Whenever he stopped for breath a shout would go up, beginning with the blocks of uniformed men. McCann! McCann! McCann the leader! McCann to power! You even let him have a private army? he asked the crown prince. Oh, those silly buffoons and their musical comedy uniforms, the crown prince shrugged. They aren't armed. Not visibly, he granted. Not yet. I don't know where they'd get arms. No, your highness, Prince Bentrick said. Neither do I. That's what I'm worried about. End of chapter 21